And we're back yet another episode of the Late Kick Extra podcast. I am Josh Pate. Thanks so much for joining me this morning, this early afternoon, evening. It's probably Tuesday, but not definitely Tuesday, October 27th, wherever you are listening. Thank you so much. We are over 800 five-star reviews in Apple Podcasts now. If you haven't already, either on your phone or by stealing someone else's, please get in there. Search for Late Kick and give us a five-star review. Thank you so much for getting us over 800. The drive for 1,000 is still on. We got a loaded mailbag this morning. JoshPate706 at gmail.com is one way you can get in touch with me. At Late Kick Josh on Twitter is another way you can get in touch with me, or you can leave a question in your written review in your five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So a lot of you do it a lot of different ways. Thank you so much for that. Also, another quick shout-out. I've been doing this. I'm going to do it probably until the end of this week. A lot of you uh, who have emailed me over the course of the summer or DM'd me over the course of the summer or maybe in the YouTube chat and you've asked, hey, you know, kind of interested, maybe a little bit interested in sports media or just, you know, building my own YouTube channel, maybe looking to get into the industry, like whatever the case may be. I have time right now. I've carved out some time I'm doing it a couple of nights a week, very limited one-on-one Zoom sessions, about an hour a piece. So we get into very granular detail on what it takes to do this, what it takes to do that. I have learned a lot of lessons the hard way in this business. So I encourage you, if you're serious, not if you're just toying with the idea, if you're serious about wanting to go down those roads, or hey, maybe you're a parent, your mom or dad. I had a guy get in touch with me earlier today and say, hey, I got a, I got a son who really fits that description. I, he doesn't listen to the podcast, but I do. Could you talk to him? Set it up earlier tonight. We did it. So get in touch with me. Uh, set, again, joshpate706 at gmail.com or at Josh on Twitter. So we've got a loaded mailbag this morning. Let's waste no more time and dive in. We're going all over the place. First question is from Matthew. He's asked the question for like a month in a row, and I keep bumping it because I didn't have a really solid answer. But really, this was always going to be my answer. He said, what rule changes would you make to college football? Well, there's really only one place to start with me, and that's targeting. Targeting was instituted a little while ago, and it had a purpose. And I think it has more than served the purpose. Think about the game in 1992, and think about the game in 2012, and then 2020, and just the evolution of the way that defense is taught, the way defense is played, the complete and total wipeout shots you used to see across the middle. You'd see a guy's neck and his helmet snap backwards from impact. You don't really see that a whole lot anymore. And when you do see it, I saw John Bostick deliver one of these in the NFL the other day. It is so immediately condemned by the entire football watching community and playing and coaching community that it sticks out like a sore thumb. That used to be just a normal Sunday. And so whether it's the NFL, and I'm not really addressing the NFL because, you know, they handle their own business there. But in college football, it is so just over the top to be eliminating guys from competition, not for the egregious blows. That's what I want to get to. You have to have a couple of tiers. The way we used to do pass interference in college football, or I think it was face mask. The way you would do face mask is you would do five-yard incidental, and then you would do 15-yard face mask. And so it left some interpretation in the eyes of the official. Well, targeting, I think, should be reverse engineered that way now. It has accomplished its purpose. It has largely eradicated the completely unnecessarily violent hits to the head out of the sport of college football. And again, when it happens in the rare instance, of course, you have the mechanisms in place to take care of it. But right now, we're watching, guys. I remember the Georgia-Auburn game a few weeks ago. You got a couple of safeties that are out of the game in the first half 
to be honest with you, for doing what they were coached to do. And you have a lot of incidental, I call them incidental headshots, and it's not really headshots, it's just contact to the head or neck area that happen in a contact sport sometimes, like football. It's not intentional. There's no purpose behind it. It's not malicious in any sense. And right now you're sending an official over to review these plays and they have, I'm not blaming the officials. They have a list of criteria they're looking for. And if the criteria are met, you have to eliminate someone from the game. They're just enforcing the rules. I'm telling you, you got to overhaul those rules and you got to put some room for interpretation in there where an official can look and say, all right, yes, it did technically happen here, so let's keep the 15-yard foul. Let's even call it a personal foul. So if you garner two of those in a, in a game, you'll be ejected. But you can't just have guys play in full speed and just in a split second, someone moves a body at the last moment, a ball carrier lowers his head, and it just so happens to coincide with when a defender had already prepared his body for contact and he had begun the initiation of contact And oh my goodness, their helmets touched. And I'm not making light of head injuries. Everyone knows what it looks like when you intentionally or maliciously target someone. Vast majority of the time these days, that's not what's happening. So I'm not saying take targeting out of the game. I'm saying keep it there. I'm just saying add in some room for interpretation where everyone with common sense can look at something, including an official, and say, all right, we may have targeting by the letter of the law here. We'll enforce the targeting. There's no way this kid should be ejected from this game because he just did what we're looking at on this screen. So that's the rule change. Keep the rule. Just add in some tears to the rule. Samar is next up. Samar said, I remember Urban Meyer said a while back, one of the reasons programs like Notre Dame and Michigan have declined was largely due to population and demographic shifts in the Rust Belt states. Ohio State still has a fertile recruiting base, but looks to attract more out-of-state talent. Does Urban Meyer have a point, and will this continue to hurt Big Ten schools? It'll hurt them as much as they allow it to hurt them. You know, you mentioned Ohio State there, and you're right. Ohio State, they still recruit Ohio, like they still recruit the Midwest, but they understand where you have to go. You got to go south. They got a guy, well, they had a guy that you were mentioning there in Urban Meyer who understood that all too well. He coached at the University of Florida, and Ryan Day and anyone, James Franklin at Penn State, they all know. They all know where you got to go. So that's no mystery. I think that this is as hard as you make it because it can be a built-in excuse or it can just be a hurdle that you overcome. I think this can be done at Michigan. I think it can be done at Notre Dame. I think it can be done at Penn State, and it is being done at Ohio State. Here's what you also have to understand. Yes, there have been population shifts, and yes, less people live there and more people live in the South. Yes, all that exists. But you're talking about such big picture things here. You sign 25 kids a class. You're not signing 2,500 kids a class. I mean, it's election season, okay? That stuff matters in election season. We're talking about recruiting. We're, we're getting 25 kids per class. So number one, even if you were just still recruiting your geographic territory, you'd be able to find 25 quality kids per class. However, here's why you don't have to think that way. Just as the population dynamics have shifted, something else has shifted. And that is, it's never mattered less where a state boundary is. Look at kids and how territorial recruiting used to be 30 years ago, and then look at how those territories have just kind of dissolved these days. Kids don't give a second thought to leaving California to go play at Clemson. Kids don't give a second thought leaving Florida to go play at USC when USC's 
operating the way they're supposed to, they don't care anymore. By and large, now every kid is a case-by-case example, but guys don't care anymore. The country, because of what technology has done, and because of just how easier it is to travel, the country has never been smaller in that sense, and state boundaries have never mattered less. So yes, the population shift has happened, and maybe it has had somewhat of an impact on Midwestern schools. But there's a reason why this doesn't matter for Ohio State. They're a consistent winner. And if Michigan's a consistent winner, magically, you'll see that this is not as much of a problem anymore. I just, that's the formula. The formula is, if you can win, this all takes care of itself. The question, of course, becomes, okay, but how do we win before we're able to recruit like that? Mm, That's a different question. I think probably a little bit longer-winded answer than we're ready to give this morning. Next up is Connor. Connor said, in your opinion, what's more impressive, Nick Saban going 23-0 against his former assistants at Alabama or winning 94 straight games against unranked opponents? Well, Connor, I got to go with the latter just because 94 games is 94 games. And I got to be honest with you, I've probably been at some of those and I watch how some of these unranked teams just over the span of over a decade now, not any one given team. If you see the effort people give, you're everyone's Super Bowl. So those rankings and who's ranked and not, sometimes that doesn't matter so much with Alabama because the reality is if you play the 36th best team in the country, you're probably going to get a top 25 effort out of the number 36 team in the week that you play them. Now, when you watch them the next week on film, they may lose to a team they're favored by four touchdowns against because you took a lot out of them. But the rankings never mattered all that much to me because I know... I'm getting everyone's best punch if I'm Alabama, and yet they still haven't dropped a single one, 94 straight. It just goes to show you all that boring stuff that Nick Saban talks about, and I say that sarcastically. It's not boring at all if you understand its wavelength, but all that boring stuff he talks about regarding process and trusting the process and sticking with the process over prize, being process-oriented over result-oriented, that's what that yields. Like it may sound boring, but it delivers consistency. Whereas you could also run a program another way. You could run a program where you treat quote unquote big games the same way fans and media do. And when you got a top 10 team rolling into town, then you could treat that thing like it is the Super Bowl and your kids are going to be up for it. I promise you. But here's the problem. Then when you play a 500 team the next week and you try and convince them, oh, oh, we got to get up again. We got to get up again. No. They can tell you're trying to manufacture it. Why in the world should they manufacture it? Nick Saban's not like that. It's obvious he's not like that. The guy treats every week the same week. You see him flip out on the sideline when they're up 45 against Georgia Southern. It's not a show. He's not putting on an act. It's because they treat every week the same. That whole nameless, faceless opponent. Now, to a certain degree, when you got Georgia coming into town, yeah, everyone's aware of it. I'm not ignorant to that. But what I'm saying is the ability to maintain the consistency and performance among 18 to 22-year-old kids over that long a span, not a single hiccup, that's really, really impressive. Back to the Bricks podcast is next up. Who has a better chance of making the playoff? Cincinnati or Cincinnati, or Oklahoma State. Those are two schools, not three schools. I'm going to say Oklahoma State, only because right now they're still undefeated, and they're going to have a powerful enough strength of schedule. Their three upcoming games, and keep in mind they just beat Iowa State, hashtag my clones, and so they just beat Iowa State. They have got, I believe, Texas this week. 
then they've got Kansas State, then they've got Oklahoma in back-to-back-to-back weeks. So no one's going to talk at all about their strength of schedule if they go undefeated and let's say they win the Big 12 championship game. That's a tall task. But if they were to do that undefeated, which they still are, yeah, they'd be in. I mean, I just think they'd be in. Now, will they be undefeated? That's another conversation. Cincinnati, I can't guarantee you that even if they go undefeated. Now, they look good against SMU the other night, and we had them as one of our five official plays. For for the record, we had them the week before against Tulsa, too, and they postponed the game. So it's not that I don't like Cincinnati. I picked them in the preseason to win the AAC. I just don't know if their fate is in their hands nearly as much as Oklahoma State's. Therefore, I'm going to say Oklahoma State. And the next question here was from, I believe, Noah. I believe Noah. So I'm like 75% sure on that. I got some of my names mixed up. But the question is a good one. Has the ACC surpassed the Big 12? Now, that's all the question said. It wasn't at the top. It wasn't mid-tier. It's just, has the ACC surpassed the Big 12? So you know the way that I like to do this. It's the same way I wish bowl season operated, where you matched up conference opponents based on seeding. So I just looked at this and I've got my own power ratings here. So I looked at where I have these teams rated right now. The top team in the ACC obviously is Clemson by 10 miles and they would be the top team in the Big 12. So if I were to go just just shot for shot here, Clemson better than Oklahoma. And then the next here, it would be North Carolina and Oklahoma State. Those are my next two highest rated teams respectively in these conferences. Those teams I have very comparable. I mean, I've got a point separating those teams on a neutral field. Next, it would be Miami and Texas. I've also got those teams very comparable. After that, it would be Virginia Tech, Iowa State. Both of those teams, extremely comparable. Pitt and Baylor would be next. Both of those teams, very comparable. I'm talking less than a field goal separating every single one of these matchups below the top matchup on a neutral field. So you can keep going like that. It keeps going for a while. My point is... The reason you would give the ACC the edge here is because of their edge at the top. Clemson would be a decided favorite as a program and as this year's version of that program or a team against Oklahoma. I think that. And so I would say ACC over Big 12. Yes, at the moment. Noah, I think, had two questions. Listen, I got at least one of these right. So the next question is, should Will Muschamp be replaced by Steve Sarkeesian at South Carolina? Steve Sarkeesian is the offensive coordinator at Alabama. He's doing a phenomenal job. He and Barry Odom, I think on either side of the ball this year, are the early front runners for coordinators of the year in the SEC. And for that matter, you could make an argument all of college football. Still early for that, either side of the coin. Um, that's not the question, Noah. The question is, would he take the job? And I don't know what the answer is there. Well, I guess before any of that, the question is, is the job going to be open? Now, you asked, should they replace him? Well, by default, to replace him, you got to fire Will Muschamp, Muschamp being the him. I don't know that that's going to happen. That's still very much up in the air. I think that is still to be decided, obviously, but I think it is in play. Let's say I don't think people have closed their minds to the idea of that just because it's a COVID year. So if it were to happen, sure, I think they'd go offense. I'm certain they would go offense. Steve Sarkeesian may be a name they target, but Sark had offers. He had an offer from Mississippi State this past year. He turned it down. So you never know where his head's at. Uh, you know, you never know. He's had personal struggles in the past. You, you never know what he values. Like, 
where does he view himself right now? I'm sure that Steve Sarkeesian eventually wants to be a head coach again. Where is his head at at the moment? Is he totally happy being a coordinator at Alabama? I mean, is he totally happy being the offensive version of Kirby Smart? And he'll just wait it out until an absolute premier job comes open. And until it does, he'll just wait there. And knowing he's making over $2 million a year as a coordinator, it could be that. Or it could be he has a list in his top drawer. And as soon as one of those schools comes calling, he's gone. I don't know. I just don't think it's slam dunk if South Carolina's open that he would take it. I lean towards yes, make no mistake, I would lean towards him taking it, but you just never know. Those guys these days, those top-level coordinators, it's not like it used to be. They don't have to take anything less than a premier job. Ryan Day, Lincoln Riley, uh, Kirby has shown that, and Steve Sarkeesian has already been a head coach before, so he wouldn't even be a first-time head coach. There is a really good question here about Joe Milton. And Michigan. And John asked it, and I think it's time for us to broach this topic. I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to have excitement even after week one. And we'll touch on that right after this. So John just threw it out there. Is Joe Milton the piece Michigan has been missing? John, I think the answer very much could be yes. I think Joe Milton, who is the starting quarterback now at Michigan, if you didn't see him week one, Take about 10 minutes. Go watch the condensed game. I would assume they'd have it on YouTube. Just go check out his performance against Michigan. Here's what you're not going to see. You're not going to see a guy raining 60-yard-in-the-air touchdowns over the opposition the entire evening. You're not going to see 550 total yards passing or anything like that. That's not what you're going to see. You're going to see a guy who is scratching the surface of pretty immense potential. You're going to see a guy who gives you certainly a better threat in the running portion of the RPO game than Shea Patterson ever did. You're going to see a guy who's got a very good arm. He can make all the throws. Accuracy is something that's going to be a work in progress. He's not terribly inaccurate, but he does have work to do there. You're also going to see an offensive line in front of him that I thought wildly exceeded most people's expectation, albeit in week one against a Pretty green defensive front, so they'll have bigger tests ahead of them, will the Michigan offensive line, but so far so good there, and a really good stable of backs. So the point is, he's not going to be asked, he being Joe Milton, to carry the offense. But I think through one week, they put up nearly half a hundred against Minnesota in week one. I think you have to be so encouraged, not just because of Joe Milton. It's one thing to have the player on the roster, but what I talked about on the Sunday night episode of Late Kick Live is, which you need to go subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel and watch if you haven't already. I said, here's what's refreshing if you're a Michigan fan. You watch the game and it's great. You scored all the points. It's great. You look like you have the quarterback. Here's what's really great. They're committed to doing it. They're committed to evolving the offense. That's the it. That whole thing. You asked, is Joe Milton the missing piece? The missing piece has been fully committing to evolving that offense, having a more modernized approach offensively. Josh Gaddis is in his second year as offensive coordinator now. The system is his. The roster is working its way towards being one offensively that reflects what he wants there. But I got to think as soon as they walked off the field the other night, after that offensive performance and probably leading up to that game, he's on the phone or texting with every recruit he can saying, hey, watch Saturday night. You know, I'm, I'm telling you that you'll fit in this new system we're going to run. You want to see it? Watch it. Well, then they implement it and they run it to darn near perfection for one week. I got to believe he was on that phone as soon as he walked off that field in the locker room, which is pretty standard these days, and 
probably got in touch with as many guys as he could. Receivers all over the place. Did you watch the game? You see the game? You did? Okay, that's all. Just checking. Just checking. As long as you watch the game, you don't need to hear the words come out of my mouth. You just watch the pretty moving pictures on your screen. That tells you the story that I've been trying to tell you. So I am very encouraged with Michigan right now. That doesn't mean they won't have hiccups. I assume they will. But you got to be very encouraged. All right, Simon's up next. This is a pretty basic question, but we can go any number of directions. He just said, what would you say is the best piece of advice that you could give me to try and make it in your profession? Make sure you love it. That's my first piece of advice. I cannot tell you how many folks that I have experienced in our industry who do not love their job. And that may sound crazy to you because it's sports, right? It's sports. Everybody loves sports. No, they don't. They do not. Don't make the mistake of thinking that just because you love it, everyone does. I also run into this problem with fall weddings. Everyone wants to schedule a fall wedding and then get mad when everyone else is not as passionate about it as they are. No, it's okay for you to be obsessed with your wedding. Just don't expect everyone else to be obsessed with it when it's in the middle of a football season. Well, the same is the case when it comes to working in the sports media profession. You love it. And so the idea to you may just be nirvana. Not everyone's here because they love it. Some of them, it's just a job. They happen to be able to write or talk or edit or produce, and this is just the job they could find. I've always thought these jobs were in such high demand and they're so scarce in quantity that I don't know how anyone just settles into one of these jobs, but it does happen. So the first piece of advice, make sure you love it. You have plenty of talents and you'll have plenty of passions. Wherever those talents and those passions intersect, and there are going to be several of those in your life, find those intersections. And those places are the only places, especially if you're in college, which Simon, you are, those are the only places you should ever be seeking a career. Don't be just trying to find a job. Try and find a career at the intersection of your passion and your talent. There's no excuse not to do that. And the digital media world offers you limitless possibility. But my point is, if you don't love this stuff, it's okay. You can still watch it on TV on Saturday. Don't try and be pursuing this stuff if you don't love it. Because there is a lot of long days. There's a lot of thankless work long before anyone ever pays you anything remotely close to what you think you're worth. So you'll get filtered out. If you don't love it, you will get filtered out and you will be exposed for your lack of passion and you will have wasted a few years that in retrospect was meaningless for you. So make sure you love it. I was just doing a Zoom with someone earlier tonight and I was talking about this. Now, it was very clear five seconds in, the person I was talking to loved it. And that's great. So at that point, it's all systems go. Let's find out how to put some wings and a landing gear on this whole idea. Make sure you love it. That's, that is, I'm glad you asked that, Simon, because that is like right up the alley of the stuff that I prefer to talk to with you guys about on these one-on-one -on -one, uh, Zoom consultations. So again, if you want to get in on one of those, I've, I think I got a couple left for this week. I mean, I'll find some time for you. It, it may not be immediately. Those spots go pretty quick when I mention it on the air. So they're going to go pretty quick today, probably when this podcast comes out. So reach out to me in email or on Twitter at LateKickJosh or JoshPate706 at gmail.com. Those are really fun too, because some of you email questions. Like there are some of your faces I'm just now seeing for the first time that I've spoken to for a long time. I was... There's, a, there's apparently a class at Alabama right now where they are assigning you to interview someone 
in the sports media world. So three of you reached out to me. I've already done one of those. I did it earlier tonight. I'm recording this on Monday night. I'm going to do two more this week. And um, that was one of the questions. One of the questions is, what's been the biggest challenge and what is the biggest challenge, you know, when you're trying to grow a show? And I don't know if it's a challenge um, because it's not hard to me. Thankfully, it comes natural. One of the few things that comes natural to me is just being able to talk to an audience in a normal way, like we're at lunch together. I've never thought that you should talk to someone any different behind a microphone as you would when you're at lunch with them. It's just a podcast about football. It's not really that big a deal. And so I was talking about that and it occurred to me, you know, it's a very unique thing. If you think about trying to build a successful show or a podcast or something like that, chances are, unfortunately, I'll never meet 99.9% of you guys face to face. I'll never even see most of your faces. And yet I feel like I know you. And I'm pretty sure you feel like you know me. I mean, like very, I'm going to use the word intimately, but keep your mind out of the gutter. You know what I mean by that? Pretty intimately. I mean, characteristics of this listening audience, I know them. I know by and large what you guys like, what you don't like, what you want to hear, what you don't want to hear. I mean, where do you lean on this? Which way are you going to go on that? And with very few exceptions, I can be right on the money. So that's pretty unique to have a relationship with people who you've only communicated with digitally, most of the time, just one way, as big as our audience is, I'll never hear from 99% of you guys, but yet I know you and you know me. So I don't know how in the world we got there. And I'm Jordan or Tani. I don't know who's producing this podcast. I don't think we're clipping that one for web, but Hey, it was fun. Nonetheless, that's why you got to listen to every episode because there are things that you can only find here. Of course, you also may think I just wasted 10 minutes of your life, in which case I sincerely apologize. And you know what? Why don't we just move on? All right, next question here. I got to be honest. I was a little surprised by this. I've not heard this question or even a version of this question in a talking point. But Spencer wanted to know, is Utah making a mistake by not moving on from Kyle Whittingham? He has always prioritized defense over offense, and I believe it's keeping the program from really breaking out. Spencer, listen, this is going to sound derogatory in nature to you. It's not. Again, pretend we're at lunch. This is exactly how I would talk to one of my buddies if he said what you just said. I I don't. What do you think Utah football is supposed to be? Okay, that's the harsh first question I have to ask you. Let me give you the impression for people outside of Utah, outside of the fan base, what people's perception of that program would be. Eight wins being a good year especially now that they are in a Power 5 conference. Eight wins being a good year. Uh, I happen to love the identity and profile of that program. I think it is tailor-made to what they are and what they have to be. I'm just being real with you. I don't think that Utah would ever recruit to the level consistently that you need in order to make that shift to being an offensive-minded program. And not just offensive-minded, one that wins consistently. So right now, you are what you are. You have the style you have. I had to look this up to make sure... Kyle Whittingham has been the permanent head coach there since 2005. They've had nine seasons of nine plus wins. That's phenomenal. That's a, that is incredible. Have they won a national title? No, you're not winning a national title at Utah. You're just not. Okay. I grew up in the South. I grew up around major SEC programs and yes, true enough. The standards at Alabama or Georgia or Florida, it's national championship that's because the sport is built to deliver those programs national championships if they fully invest. You can be fully invested at Utah 
you're still going to have a really tough time. Unless you have like an 07 kind of season where everything's crazy, you're going to have a really tough time winning the national championship. So I would have my expectations there calibrated along the lines of what I said. And what I said is eight, nine wins. Nine, nine wins to me is a phenomenal year on average at Utah. And he's done it nine times. I'm looking here to make sure. Uh, 2005 was his first full year there. I'm just going to read you the wins in order. 7, 8, 9, 13, 10, 10, 8, 5, 5, 9, 10, 9, 7, 9, 11. That's getting it done at Utah. The question really becomes, are you surprised no one's ever been able to pry Kyle Whittingham from Utah? And my answer to that is, yeah, I am surprised. I don't know his background. I don't know hardly anything about Kyle Whittingham personally. I've always admired him from afar. But listen, you got a really good thing going there at Utah. Trying to push Kyle Whittingham out the door to replace him with an offensive-minded guy, that's the kind of thing that, yeah, there is a little bit of reward possible, but there is an insanely higher level of risk inherent in that decision. That's the kind of thing you look back on four coaches and 15 years later, and you say, why in the world did we get rid of Kyle Whittingham? Do you remember the consistency with which this program operated? And we got rid of that guy. Woof. All right, we got a really, really loaded week. There's a good two-week stretch coming up right now. I think the night slate this weekend is very sneaky good. Next week, you obviously have Clemson, Notre Dame. Also in the SEC, you got Georgia, Florida next week. But I just want to quickly run this down because we're breaking down games. We do our predictions on Tuesday night show on Late Kick Live on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. Be sure to subscribe there. But I want to let you know what we have coming this week and the games that we'll probably be predicting tonight. We got an early slate that eh, kind of is what it is. Texas at Oklahoma State is kind of intriguing. Uh, but then you got, oh, obviously, Ohio State-Penn State is the big-time night game. But I want you to listen to some of these matchups. Arkansas plays Texas A&M Saturday. A&M was our best bet at minus 10. They've already moved to minus 12. So that it, that's a big game. That's one of those undercard games. That's a big game. Texas A&M, I didn't know this until I just looked just now because I never look at the AP. Texas A&M's ranked eighth in the country. Good for you, Aggies. I think I've got them a little bit north of that, actually. Missouri plays Florida. Missouri, we're very high on. We have been higher on Missouri the entire year than the rest of America apparently has. They go to Florida. Florida's a 13-point favorite. Keep in mind, Florida has got the Georgia game on deck. That's not to give away a pick one way or the other. Just That's the backdrop with which that game will be played. North Carolina plays Virginia. Oklahoma plays Texas Tech. There are some really good, for my money, evening games. How about Boise State? Nice little 14-point favorite at Air Force. So this is not a dry weekend, is what I'm saying. There is plenty of reason to be very dialed in. I think Kansas State on the road in the noon window, Eastern time, of course, against West Virginia. I think that's a fascinating game. Memphis is at Cincinnati Saturday. Cincinnati, we had a question about them. Could they be a playoff contender? They're a touchdown favorite against Memphis. Georgia? is a 14-point favorite at Kentucky. Quarterback situation, Bears watching. So there's a lot to watch Saturday. We're going to be breaking all that and more down tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Again, five-star reviews, five-star reviews. I'm not going to say it five more times. You understand. Five-star reviews. So give us those on Apple Podcast. Subscribe if you haven't already. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you haven't already, we'll see you there tonight. On the producing side, for Tani, 
For Jordan, in no particular order, I'm Josh Pate. Have a great rest of your day, and God bless.